from NBC Radio, a special news report. The Congo explosion worldwide. Reporting for NBC News, this is Bill Ryan. This was to be a special day at the United Nations. We all knew that. The cab driver who drove me there this morning mentioned it. When I asked him to take me to the U.N., he said, they're going to have a pretty hot time over there today, huh? I agreed with him in view of Russia's acknowledged intention to launch an all-out attack on the United Nations, its operation in the Congo, and the Secretary General. When I got out of the cab, the hacky said to me, can anyone get in there for the sessions? I replied that you could. Show up, ask for a ticket, and your chances of watching the world's top diplomats at work were very good. Neither he nor I had the slightest inkling that this morning's session would be as public as it turned out. The situation this morning was this. The Soviet Union had already made known its intention to seek the ouster of Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld, its intention to press for the removal of all foreign and United Nations troops from the Congo. The United States had already made known its intention to fully support the role of the United Nations and the conduct of the Secretary General in attempts to solve the Congo crisis. Our delegate, Adlai Stevenson, was to be the first speaker once the agenda had been adopted. Well before the session was to begin, we could see from our NBC booth overlooking the Security Council chamber that all the seats in the public galleries were taken. We'd watched dozens of citizens hurry through the halls headed for the last few seats as we entered the building to cover the critical session. Critical though it was, it did not get underway on time, but then UN sessions rarely do. Our man, Adlai Stevenson, was the last delegate to arrive. When he'd taken his place, the council president this month, Sir Patrick Dean of the United Kingdom, tapped the desk with his gavel and declared the opening of the 934th session of the Security Council. This is the voice of an American in the United Nations Security Council chamber. We believe that the only way to keep the Cold War out of the Congo is to keep the United Nations in the Congo. And we call on the Soviet Union to join us in thus ensuring the free and untrammeled exercise by the Congolese people of their right to independence and to democracy. But Mr. President, the position apparently taken by the Soviet government involves more than the unhappy and despicable fate of three Congolese politicians. It involves the future of the 14 million Congolese people. They are the ones with whom we are concerned. We deplore the past and we condemn those responsible for it, more, no matter who they may be. But we submit that it is the future that is all important now, and that the best efforts of this Council should be concentrated on the future security of the Congo, and indeed on the future security of all peoples. For, Mr. President, it is the security of all peoples which is threatened by this statement and by the proposals of the Soviet government. Let me make my meaning abundantly and completely clear if I can. The United States government believes and proudly believes that the single best and only hope of the peoples of the world for peace and security lies in the United Nations. It lies in international cooperation, in the integrity of an international body rising above international rivalries into the clearer air of international morality and international justice. The United Nations has not achieved perfection, nor has the United States, and they probably never will. 
The United States, like the United Nations, is composed of humans. It has made mistakes. It probably always will make mistakes. It has never pleased all people. It cannot please all people. In its desire and wholehearted determination to do justice, it may offend one group of states in 1952, another in 1956, and perhaps still another in 1961. But always the United States has tried, and we believe it will always try, to apply even-handedly the rules of justice and equity that should govern us all. Are we callously to cast aside the one and only instrument that men have developed to safeguard their peace and security? Are we to abandon the jungles of the Congo to the jungles of internecine warfare and of international rivalry? This issue, Mr. President, even transcends the fate of the suffering 14 million Congolese people. It involves the fate of all of us, of all mankind. The issue then is simply this. Shall the United Nations survive? Shall the attempt to bring about peace by the concerted power of international understanding be discarded? Those are the voices of other Americans raised in unholy anger in the aisles of the council chamber. I was taking notes on Mr. Stevenson's speech, heard the demonstrators before I saw them, but as I looked up, I could see a few of them, men carrying hats and coats, streaming down the aisles of the public galleries. I saw a woman in a brilliant red dress, a Negro woman, suddenly double over, grasp the balustrade of the barrier between the public and press sections, and start to scream in a high-pitched wail that was to continue until the demonstrators were finally cleared from the chamber 15 minutes later. No one had touched her, no one had done her violence, but her shrill scream was the one sound that dominated the shouting melee which flowed in waves across the entire council chamber. About a dozen Negro men had stormed the doors of the council chamber, bursting in from the third floor corridor on a given signal. Their entrance was the cue for other sympathizers in the chamber to start shouting. The only word which came through clearly was the name of Patrice Lumumba, the former Congo premier killed in the Congo. In aisles on both sides of the public galleries, the UN security guards grappled with the men who forced their way into the room while the women screamed. I watched three guards, all of them well-built, strong men, trained in judo, struggle vainly to break the grip of one man who held fast to the railing with a tenacity that could have come only from the wellsprings of strength that flow from fanaticism. Sir Patrick Dean declared the session suspended till the guards could clear the room. That took them 15 minutes. But the greater, more ferocious battle was fought in the corridor which the invaders had left just a few moments ago. There, about 50 of their sympathizers were gathered. There they punched, kicked, bit, and scratched UN guards and newsmen covering the disturbance. One photographer was knocked unconscious, hit from behind as he made a picture. He was not seriously injured. Another, Joel Landau of United Press International, was slugged, suffered a nasty cut on his forehead, which he said came either from brass knuckles or a chain. Landau has covered events such as these before. He and others cannot recall such viciousness, such ferocity in a battle of man against man. Finally, order was restored. Mr. Stevenson completed his remarks. After apologizing to the Security Council for the demonstration, inasmuch as Americans may have been involved, those were his words. Were they Americans? 
were they Africans? They say they were both Americans of African lineage, but the slogans they chanted when they moved their demonstrations across the street to a small park were not couched in American terms or based on American ideals. The story from the man who was there, NBC's Ray Owen, reporting from the United Nations Plaza. Yankee no! Yankee no! If this sounds familiar, it's because it is. It's the well-known Cuba Sea Yankee No chant, changed slightly to Congo Yes Yankee No. And those chanting it were familiar. We saw them singing the original at pro-Castro demonstrations in the past. Also among the demonstrators outside the UN, the Muslims, a fanatic group of black supremacists who apparently have finally found a cause to rally round. They did not talk to us, and their chants were strange. Lumumba is the Christ of Africa. The UN murdered Lumumba, and Africa for the Africans. The Muslims arrived first, stayed till last, and are still demonstrating even now in front of one of their gathering places in Harlem. However, the great majority of those demonstrating today we had seen before in marches for peace, disarmament rallies, and other causes. And while the Negroes among them protested that they felt a kindred spirit with their brothers in Africa, you could hear the party line seep through. When you bring in the question of the Soviet Union, and you start saying, is this anti-American demonstration? Well, it so happens that the Americans have always been anti towards the Negroes of this country, you see. And these people are Afro-Americans. These people wish to assert their, uh, their rights as, as, as people in, of this country. But some of the questions that have been, uh, have been posed are irrelevant to the fact. Then you feel a sympathy and a kindredship for the, for the, for the Africans? I, of course I have to have a kinship because I am an Afro-American, you see. So therefore, our, our interest is, in, is interconnected and interrelated in all aspects. Also among the marchers, Ben Davis, one of the original 12 Communist Party leaders in America who were convicted of conspiracy to overthrow the government and jailed. Ray Owen, NBC News. While that was going on outside, Russia's Valerian Zorin was making a part of the United Nations record the Soviet terms which would result in the nullification of all that organization has tried to do in the Congo. He was calling for the arrest of Congo government officials who don't follow the Moscow line, as he does. He was calling for the disarmament of all troops in the Congo which do not answer to commanders sympathetic to the Kremlin. He was calling for the UN to get out of the Congo within one month and for the immediate dismissal of Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld. Mr. Stevenson had anticipated most of these, had said to abandon the UN effort in the Congo would be to abandon that country to chaos and civil war and would also be an act of abandonment of basic UN principles. Stevenson said the Secretary General needed no defense from the United States, that all peace-loving peoples would see Mr. Hammarskjöld's record as that of a dedicated international civil servant whose only loyalty is to international justice and international peace. Then Mr. Hammarskjöld, as Mr. Stevenson had been firm and emphatic in attacking the Russian position, so was Mr. Hammarskjöld firm and emphatic. In the present effort in some quarters to blacken the organization and discredit its representatives, irrespective of the validity of the reasons and irrespective of the facts of the case, the real victim is the future. To gain a short advantage nationally or for a party, those who act in that way sacrifice the legacy which future generations should have in this organization. It is ironic for us who have been guided solely by the interests of the Congo and solely by the wish to develop the practices of this organization in a way which may lay a foundation for future international cooperation 
to be attacked by those who pursue entirely different aims, mostly only too easily discernible, and for that purpose find it useful to undermine the confidence in the organization by claiming that we act against the interests of the Congo and against the principles of the Charter. Hammarskjöld also reaffirmed his intention not to resign as long as the majority of the UN members want him to continue in office. But the death of Patrice Lumumba has provoked demonstrations in all parts of the world, in virtually every nation whose flag flies outside the UN building incidents, all of them rooted in the Congo, where today Belgians were beaten by pro-Lumumba troops, one hurt seriously enough to need hospital care. One of the targets of the unrest in the Congo, the capital of the country which formerly ruled the Congo, Belgium. The incident there, reported by André Chalier in Brussels. A scapegoat was needed, and Belgium was perfectly suited for the role. Such is the bitter reaction to the anti-Belgian and indeed anti-Western demonstrations which have taken place in African and Eastern capitals and even in the United Nations. Official protests have been lodged with the ambassadors of the countries where violence was at its peak. Criticisms is of course, are of course being voiced even in this very country about links between Belgian private interests and Katanga's government. And opposition spokesmen are advocating a severing of such links and the withdrawing of the 200 Belgian officers who are leading Katanga's armed forces. Belgium's official thesis is that such withdrawal would not solve the Congo crisis. Why, it is asked, shouldn't Belgium have kept close relations with the Congo, just as Great Britain and France have done in their former colonies? Belgian financial and technical aid was offered to the new independent Congo. Why has Lumumba rejected it? Substitute aid on the part of the United Nations has proved to be inoperative, as the United Nations are unable to fill the void which has been created by the massive departure of Belgian businessmen and public servants. Indignation is being expressed in Brussels about the way Mr. Lumumba found his death, indignation and resentment at the way the affair was handled by Katanga's Chombe. But it is felt a sense of proportion should be maintained between the mistakes which can be rightly ascribed to Belgium and the accusations which are now being leveled at Belgian policy. André Charlier, NBC News, Brussels. And in Cairo, mobs stormed the Belgian embassy, set of the fire. In Warsaw, Belgian diplomats were attacked. Throughout the world, in France, Ghana, Morocco, Italy, Great Britain, and many other countries, similar outbreaks. Tonight in Washington, President Kennedy, at his news conference, spoke on the crisis that grips the Congo and the United Nations. That report from Frank Bergholzer in the nation's capital. Well, President Kennedy went directly to the issue of the Congo when he met with reporters earlier this evening. He read a statement and afterward carefully pointed out to us that the statement was carefully drawn and represents the policy of the United States. He began the statement by expressing support of Adlai Stevenson's presentation in the UN Security Council today. And then he went to the principal issue at hand, the antagonistic positions of the Soviet Union and the United States although at no time did he mention the Soviet Union by name. I am also, however, seriously concerned at what, appears, at what appears to be a threat of unilateral intervention in the internal affairs of the Republic of Congo. I find it difficult to believe that any government is really planning to take so dangerous and irresponsible a step. Nevertheless, I feel it important that there should be no misunderstanding of the position of the United States in such an eventuality. 
The United States has supported and will continue to support the United Nations presence in the Congo. The United States considers that the only legal authority entitled to speak for the Congo as a whole is a government established under the Chief of State, President Kazavubu, who has been seated in the General Assembly of the United Nations by a majority vote of its members. The broadening of the government under President Kazavubu is a quite legitimate subject of discussion, and such discussions have been going on in Leopoldville and in New York. But the purported recognition of Congolese factions as so-called governments in other parts of that divided country can only confuse and make more difficult the task of securing Congolese independence and unity. The United Nations offers the best, if not the only possibility, for the restoration of conditions of stability and order in the Congo. The PESH reports this afternoon that Prime Minister Nehru has stated, and I quote, if the United Nations goes out of the Congo, it will be a disaster. I strongly agree with this view. Only by the presence of the United Nations in the Congo can peace be kept in Africa. I would conceive it to be the duty of the United States and indeed all members of the United Nations to defend the charter of the United Nations by opposing any attempt by any government to intervene unilaterally in the Congo. That final sentence by President Kennedy has a very grave meaning. It was, as he said, part of a statement that was very carefully drawn. As a matter of fact, it reflects a basic policy decision. We understand to have been taken some weeks ago that the United States would not permit the communists to take over the Congo. This decision was made before the slaying of Patrice Lumumba brought the Congo turmoil to such a serious point of crisis, but it was nonetheless a grave decision involving, ultimately, a possible military commitment by the United States. What the President was doing tonight was informing the world and the Soviet Union of this previously decided commitment, making sure there would be no misunderstanding. When he says the United States feels its duty is to oppose any attempt by any government to intervene unilaterally in the Congo, he does not mean oppose such attempts by making speeches or drafting resolutions or filing protests. The president, we can safely assume, meant that this country would oppose such attempts by whatever means, including possibly the use of force, that the situation might require. After this statement, the president was exceedingly cautious in answering the obvious questions, several of which were posed by reporters, about relations with Russia. But in general, he made it clear that Soviet action on this issue of the Congo will determine the possibility of peace, first of all, in Africa, and of peaceful relations between the Soviet Union and America. An eventful news conference, Bill. Yeah, Frank, I, I would get to this business now of the United States and the Soviet Union being virtually diametrically opposed in the UN. Uh, certainly it's going to be difficult for either nation to retreat from the positions they've taken uh, so completely out in the glare of uh, publicity and uh, newsmen. Is it realistic to look forward to any sort of an improvement in diplomatic relations between the two countries? Well, there's been, uh, there, there was, uh, for one thing, the, uh, what the president said in his uh, news conference. He said uh, to a question about possible cooperation in the field of space exploration, for example, which is something he mentioned in his State of the Union message. He said, I hope it would be possible for the relations between the United States and the Soviet Union to develop in such a way that the peace can be protected 
and it will be possible for us to use our energies along peaceful and productive and fruitful lines. And a little farther on in that same answer, he said, it's our earnest hope that the relations can remain harmonious and it will be possible for us to cooperate in peaceful ventures rather than be differing on matters which carry with them such hazards. And in another uh, answer, in answer to another question, he said that he hoped that eventually all members of the United Nations would be brought around to the viewpoint that it's better for all of them to work through the United Nations. Well, uh, I believe that, but uh, that's the hope. Yeah, well, I recall, Frank, when he came to that, uh, he mentioned particularly the small nations. He said this country is big enough to defend itself strong enough. It's the small nations which cannot defend themselves uh, from attacks by bigger nations. They're the ones who have the greatest stake in the UN. Uh, is there evidence in Washington that we're making any special efforts to convince the small nations that their best hope does lie there within the UN? Well, until this incident of the slaying of Patrice Lumumba, the American effort was uh, quite considerable, uh, not so much here in Washington as uh, in New York at the United Nations, but uh, also in Africa and in Washington, uh, everywhere that the pressure could be brought. Not pressure, really. It was an effort to find the small nations who were willing to be moderate in their outlook to ask them what constructive approach they would be willing to support to bring some stability to the Congo and find possible areas of, of agreement between what they would support and what this country and the other nations in the United Nations could support to bring a majority action behind such a measure. This has been a, something that's been going on for several weeks, and it's uh, it's been a very intensive working together with these small nations, particularly of Africa and also of Asia. I also mentioned, Bill, that uh, President Kennedy was very careful to quote Prime Minister Nehru of India in his news conference tonight, and I'm sure he was very uh, happy to have the Nehru statement that if the United Nations leaves the Congo, it would be a disaster, and he echoed that and said he supported that fully. Well, when, frankly, when we got that Nehru statement over at the UN this morning, uh, we were surprised at the strength of language it contained. But in this, in this business of working without being condescending to the emerging nations of Africa, isn't it largely a problem of education first and then persuasion to get them on our side? Yes, and uh, there is some, some small measure of hope among American officials that the action of the Soviet Union may be the strongest argument uh, in this direction. There's, there's been a history of Soviet throwing away of what seemed to be golden opportunities for them. This, uh, no one denies this has been a great opportunity for the Soviet Union, but there seems to be a possibility that, as they have in the past, they may push it so hard that it will turn back upon them. And uh, there is some hope that the small nations, particularly the nations in Africa, will look at the situation in the Congo and think of themselves possibly being in a similar situation and with the Soviet Union perhaps acting in a similar way and that this may be a, in the long run a very important and constructive education for them. Well, Russia in, in uh, actions like this, however heavy-handed they may be, uh, always uh, managed to make propaganda capital out of events and uh, turn things their way, or at least make them appear that way. I wonder now, Frank, if uh, in the new administration you see any effort uh, on the part of the State Department, increased effort, through Washington people and through the people up here, to do anything special to counter the Soviet propaganda machine. 
Well, the, this works on several levels, and it's my information that there has perhaps been an American failure in the propaganda field as far as acting on the scene in the Congo is concerned. That's been a, a, a place where much education was required, education of every sort, but including education on American and Western purposes and goals and intentions. And I think there's a, there's a record that shows not enough attention was paid, uh, not enough from the American standpoint, attention was paid to convincing and presenting the American case to the people in the Congo itself. Uh, as far as the administration is concerned here, the, the uh, press conference that the, pres the president has just held, I think, represents the approach that this administration will take. And his statement on the Congo, uh, coming as it did as the very first statement of the press conference, the careful drawing of it, and the unmistakable uh, aspect of warning, and yet uh, coupled with that, the expression of hope that there can be a working together, but the very firm uh, uh, tone of this statement, I would think, is the kind of propaganda retaliation, propaganda reaction that this well, uh, too, Frank, is doing. Uh, it, it seemed that the president was being extremely careful in his replies. Newsmen, after he had made the statement, tried to draw him out, and uh, he said it was carefully prepared and carefully worded, one of those sort of indicating this is as far as we can go. I cannot make it any plainer than this. Did you get that feeling? Very much so, and I think uh, the language in it is drawn not really, uh, I, I say it, it represents the propaganda approach this country will take, but I don't think it's basically propaganda. I think it's a statement that's drawn to be considered word by word and phrase by phrase and reconsidered in the Kremlin so that they will understand precisely where this country stands on the issue of the Congo and that, as the president said, there will be no misunderstanding. Frank, we have, uh, all of us in this business, used the word crisis uh, quite a bit in conjunction with this, I think quite properly. But other crises come to mind, uh, the area just before the Korean War, the invasion of Suez by Britain, the troubles in Lebanon. How about the atmosphere at the State Department now? Just how grave is this crisis in relation to others? The actions today that you've been describing, particularly the uh, fantastic scene in the Security Council, I think have, have spread throughout the State Department, throughout Washington, a sense of how of volatile a situation this is. Until today, I think it's been mainly in the areas directly concerned with Africa, with the Congo, the departments and bureaus and desks in the State Department which deal every day with Africa. I think in those areas, in those offices and down those corridors of the State Department, there's been a very important sense of urgency and sense of how dangerous this is. Senator Mansfield of Montana, the majority leader of the Senate, said tonight the Congo could be the spark that would ignite World War III. Well, this is a feeling that uh, many in the State Department have, too. But I think until today, it's been confined to those dealing with it, has not been uh, uh, noticed all around. Because as a matter of actual fact, this situation has not yet become nearly as serious as Korea and has not become as uh, open a matter as either Suez or Lebanon. Thank you very much, Frank Burkholzer, NBC State Department correspondent. So the Congo crisis spawned in Kasai and Katanga in cities named for kings and queens and explorers. Now the sidewalks of New York, the headquarters of the UN itself. People grope for support that will aid them in the first faltering steps to real freedom and independence, and the path is salted with landmines planted in every furrow of the road. 
The UN does what it can in its amorphous way to help the people of the Congo, and the Soviet Union does what it can to nurture the chaos of the Congo. And it listens with rapt attention and deep pleasure to the sounds of the Congo explosion worldwide. Bill Ryan, NBC News, New York. This has been a special report on today's historic events involving the Congo. Presented by NBC Radio. Produced for NBC News by James L. Holton. Directed by Daniel Sutter. This is the NBC Radio Network.